Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Dr. Duana Welch is back. She is the author of the Love Factually book series, and she's one of your all-time favorite guests on Love and Life. She's here to discuss in depth some of the trickiest questions we face when dating. Naturally, these are the questions I field every day and ones that Dr. Welch addresses with her clients. So we wanted to devote an entire episode to these hot topics. Specifically, we're going to delve into how to date as what Dr. Welch calls a high status woman. If you've listened to my previous conversations with Dr. Welch, you know that she uses this term very frequently. And it's a concept that's grounded in dating and mating research. By the way, if you haven't listened to my previous interviews with Dr. Welch, be sure to check out episode 92 called The Science of Dating Love Factually. Episode 102, she talks about attachment styles and dating. In episode 123, she discusses how to heal from breakup or divorce. In episode 124, she answers your questions in an episode called High Status Dating Q&A. And in episode 169, she shares the science behind online dating. And yes, there is science and research to show us how to date more successfully and how to maybe even not hate dating apps and dating online. That's episode 169. Science says, do this to stop hating dating apps and find love online. So as I mentioned, today we're getting into the brass tacks of what it means to present ourselves on the dating scene as high status and why it's imperative we do so. Specifically, Dr. Welch addresses the following questions I hear so often. Questions like, one, if I present myself as high status, won't he think I'm being manipulative and playing hard to get? Two, how do I get him to view me as high status? Specifically, what behaviors will demonstrate this? Three, but what if I don't feel high status? Four, I have anxious attachment, so how can I ever date high status? And five, everyone seems to think living together before marriage is a great idea. Do high status women cohabitate before getting married? As per usual, Dr. Welch provides concrete, science-based answers to these questions and much more. My conversation with Dr. Duena Welch, right after this. Have you heard... You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amidst single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. 
Dr. Welch, welcome back to Love and Life. Dr. Anderson April, it is my great pleasure again. Thank you so much. I have to have you back on the regular because you are a fan favorite and I'm such a fan of your work as well. Last time we talked about some brass tacks and the tangible concrete steps we can take to try to sort out and sort through the dating landscape that seems more and more complex based on apps and online and people feeling commodified and disposable. And one of the things that you encouraged women in that last episode is that we can present ourselves to the dating space, even the online app space, as high status. And one of the things that you suggested near the end of that episode is that we need to demonstrate our status by having a high bar. And women in my community, they feel as if they perhaps can't keep a high bar, even sometimes thinking they can't maintain high standards in their dating pursuit because so many other women have lowered the bar, right? So I can't expect a proper courtship and a proper dating approach because there's other women who are just going to Netflix and chill. And so he's going to go with her and not me. What do you say to women who have this concern? When most women behave in a way that men construe as low status, again, I don't like that, but it's true. Men construe that as low status. They date them. They live with them. They have sex with them. They usually do not marry them. When most women behave in a way that men construe as low status, the few women who behave as high status have even more options, not fewer. That seems counterintuitive. I think they're going to they're gonna push back and they're going to say, well, no, I won't have that many options because all the guys that I'm talking to right now, they're expecting this kind of, you know, you up, DTF, I think it is. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're experiencing that with so many men. But you're saying, no, they're actually going to have more options. They're going to have more options. Look, I am 52 years old. I am not a 28-year-old hottie. My boyfriend is so freaking hot. If I showed you a picture right now, your screen would melt. <laughs> I love it. I told myself back in January when I was dating, so when I went online for the first time in many, many years, because I've been married for a long time, I told myself, I am going to only hold hands with one man ever again in my life, if at all possible. Wow. It is looking like that's happening. I'm going to just give part of my story. I'm not going to say much about my sweetie because that's his story, but I'm going to give you some of my story, the things I said, because I know that statistics are correct, but I know that people think in story, not stats. So I'm going to mm-hmm. give you a story to demonstrate the stats. And I'm going to give it for my own life so that you understand I put my behavior where my mouth is. Mm-hmm. I do everything I'm asking you to do. So what I did is I took all the steps that we talked about in the last podcast about successful online dating. And then when men called me, and again, if they didn't call me, that's as far as it went. I didn't deal with men who text messaged me only. So if they didn't call me, we didn't interact at all any further. But among those who did, and again, you know, people talk about a numbers game. I don't think it's a numbers game. I think it's a knowledge game and a status game and not even a game. That's just what it takes. So I only wound up talking to, I think, 12 people. I only wound up going on first dates with four of them. I only wound up wanting a second date with the person I've been with blissfully for 10 months now. And you know, we're talking about a permanent future together. So it's going really, really well. I live in a world, as you do, where women offer up sex by the third date almost always now. So if it's true 
that women can't afford to be high status because all the other women are doing these other things and we're competing with them, then what I'm telling you to do would never work. And yet I work with clients all over the world. I did it myself. It works. Men are biologically primed to seek fertility and fidelity. They want a woman who looks young, even if she isn't, they want or young relative to them. And they want Mm -hmm. a woman whose behaviors indicate that she will not have sex behind his back. Because whereas every woman in the history of history and prehistory has known when we have a baby, we know whose it is. It's ours. Men could never have known that until very recently with the advent of paternity tests. Mating psychology does not come from the advent of paternity tests. It is ancient. So in the ancient past, men who didn't care if their woman was with a bunch of other guys, they weren't the dad. Mm-hmm. The people who are alive today are the result of what worked. We carry that psychology forward. Therefore, no matter how many women are ignoring ancient signals that work, the women who give those signals are high status and they get the guy. And I will tell you, anybody who's seen this man's picture or heard me talk about him, anybody who knows me has been completely blown away. Like, how in the hell did you do this? Well, I will tell you. (laughs) You're so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, you know, you've seen me. I don't look like a supermodel or anything. And, you know, the picture that's on my book jacket. Yeah, that's that's a real picture of me. But that's from like seven years ago. None of us gets like way better looking as we get older. So so here's the thing. I was very transparent about what my standards were in a way that conveyed high status. Low status says, please do what I want or I'm going to be really, really sad. High mm-hmm. status says, this is what I need. You'll provide it or not. I'm moving on with my life. Mm-hmm. So when I was talking to men on the phone, they would, they would want to, some of them, bring up sexual activity. and. Hey, you know, I know a lot of women are offended by that. I don't want you to be offended by that. And I'll tell you why. There are some women who don't have any sex drive whatsoever. And sex tends to be, as you might guess, quite important to men. It's important to a lot of women too, but it's super important to men. Especially at the age that I'm at, postmenopausal, some women lose their sex drive. So I wasn't offended if a man wanted to talk about this. In fact, I welcomed the opportunity for a couple of reasons. First of all, we know from science that people who are capable of talking about sex and sexuality in a comfortable, open way have a better sex life. So I view it as a boon when somebody without being creepy, stalkerish, or inappropriate will talk about healthy sexuality. That's actually a good sign. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, healthy sexuality is important to me as well. And a second reason is that this gave me a chance to tip out the players and tip in the stairs, to give men the clear message that they were not taking a risk of being cheated on by me. And then, in fact, I have really high boundaries connoting my high status. And again, I don't want you to manipulate men with this. I want this to be the actual case. I have realized... Mm -hmm that scientifically, even among young women, women in their 20s, a full three in four say that they cannot have casual sex without getting emotionally attached, even when they don't want to get emotionally attached. My suspicion is that that percentage goes way up as we get older, that even that 25% of women who say, sure, I can just screw around and leave. I don't think that percentage stays at 25%. My work with women my age and older indicates that women are much more prone to emotional connection the older we get. That's interesting. 
Now, I don't have the data on that, but I strongly suspect that's true. And why do you think that we become even less likely to be able to have that kind of divide between the physical and the emotional as we get older? I don't totally know, but I, I think that when we're young, there's some aspect of we're still exploring our bodies. We're still trying to, a lot of, I'm really going to step in it now, but here I go. Uh, <laughs> when has that ever stopped me before, Dr. Karen? <laughs> <laughs> Never, thankfully. Never. It's, it's all the juicy good stuff. <laughs> uh, I am a feminist, by which I mean that I believe that men and women should have all the same advantages and opportunities. Unfortunately, there has been a brand of thinking around this that says feminism is women becoming just like men. That's not feminism. That's giving up who you are. Mm-hmm. Why should it, that does not bespeak women's empowerment to me. To me, women's empowerment means you get to be who you are and you get to have all the same advantages and opportunities. That is the world that I am working for. So, mm-hmm. and high status comes into that. So I think that as we become older and we, we've ridden this roller coaster a bunch of times, we know what good sex is, um, we know what we like. I think that it becomes less about let's have a good time. And a lot of women have figured out, you know, a lot of women on college campuses today are hooking up because they're being told that having sex like a man is the only legitimate way to have sex, that catching feelings, and that's the phrase they're using, catching feelings Mm -hmm. is a mark of shame. Mm -hmm. And I think as we get older, we just don't buy it. We think that's BS. So I think that it may be the case that Yes, there's a smaller percentage of women who really and truly can just have sex and not care. The vast majority of us cannot do that. And among those who even can when we're young people, that tends to shift as we realize, you know what, I actually really want a deep connection. Again, am I right? I don't know that I'm right. I don't know that I'm right. I do know this though. When I said to men, my truth, I never got rid of somebody that was sincerely interested in me and not just in sex. So what is my truth? I said the following to men on first, second, and third phone calls before we even met. Okay, prepare to have all your hair fall out because most women would (laughs) never say this because they would think it would drive men away. But consider what I do for a living. I knew it wasn't going to drive them away. I knew it was going to bring the right men much closer to me, and it did. So when men would bring up something about sexuality, I would say, I'm so glad you brought that up because, um, you know, I understand that a lot of women have sex right out the gate now. And I just want to be really transparent with you that sex is not a thing that happens with me really early. In fact, before it happens with me, everybody's got to get an STD test Mm -hmm. and show it to the other person. And even then, I'm not looking to play around for the rest of my life. I'm looking to find the right person for me. And to me, that right person, we get emotionally involved and we get exclusive before we get that physical. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I realize that might sound like, oh my gosh, how would you know that the sex was even any good? You're taking such a big risk. And then this is what I would ask him I would say, have you ever kissed someone and the kissing was amazing and the sex was terrible? I've never had somebody say yes to that question. And so I say, so this is my assumption. If we reach that point and the kissing is amazing, the sex will be great too. We'll figure it out. We're, we're grownups. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. 
And if it's not, well, that's grounds for breaking up. Before we move on from this, can you can you give the listeners an example? Because I think you're right, and obviously the research supports it as well, that if we're able to be mature adults and talk about sex, then that that suggests that we'll also be able to communicate our needs and desires when we are having sex. When a man would approach you on the phone, discuss sex, how did you sort out? Because I think some women do feel that men lead with that sex and those questions. And again, they're turned off by that. How Give us a distinction between someone who's leading with that kind of smarmy vibe and then someone who's leading with an appropriate, mature conversation about sex. And not leading necessarily, but weaving that into the conversation in a more mature manner. If a man starts propositioning you saying, I, you know, I can't wait to um, whatever sexual act it is or something like that, then, okay, probably he's just playing around. But, you know, honestly, I don't think you're going to have to deal with much of that because by requiring a phone call instead of texting, look, players today are so lazy. (laughs) They're so lazy. They won't even make a phone call. That's why to ask for one. That's why to insist on one is you're getting rid of people who would treat you like an option instead of a priority. A high status woman does not accept being treated as optional ever, not at any stage of courtship, none. So just doing that is going to get rid of most of those guys. But I really don't think it's important to ascertain a man's motivation for bringing up sex on a phone call. I think what it's important to do is be high status and express your standards and he can like it or lump it. Again, high status is not desperate. There's never been a perfume called desperation. There never will be. (laughs) High status is about, hey, you know what? If it's not you, it'll be someone else. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of underscore that because I think you're right. The The weeding out process is going to be when you're expecting that phone call. And you're right. They're so lazy. They're so Netflix and chill. Come over to my house while I'm playing video games and my friends are here and we're going to have sex for 10 minutes and then I'm going to go out and play video games and you're going to sit there and order pizza for us. I mean, oh, like yeah. that's that hookup culture. And you're going to pay for the pizza. Ew. I know. I know. You know, as much as I cringe about what science shows us is effective for getting men in your life, a special man in your life, who's going to treat you like gold and crust with diamonds, rubies and emeralds. As much as I cringe about the science sometimes, here's the truth. I cringe a lot more about women who make everything so easy for men's short-term mating psychology that they lose themselves. That is so, it just, Mm -hmm. I hate that. Mm-hmm. When you insist on being treated as high status, let's assume for a minute that some of the women out there are right, and it's not going to be easy for them to find a partner when they have high standards. You know what's really easy? Finding a really crappy partner who makes your self-esteem tank. That's really easy. I would rather be by myself and have great self-esteem than be with a guy who treats me as so optional, so disposable that I have to do everything he wants and he never needs to treat me well. Yep. Absolutely. I love that you spoke to that because, yeah, as much as some of the science is like, oh, it doesn't seem on the surface to be a feminist empowered understanding of the way that we relate to one another and behave. You're right. The the opposite, which many, sadly, to my mind, many women are stepping into, that's way cringier for sure. Yeah. You know, if we're going to be cringy, let's be cringy in the direction of getting the love of your life. Yes. And maintaining our our self-worth and our knowledge that we are 
an extraordinary person. And we have absolutely every every reason to believe that we should partner with someone else who's special and extraordinary and not that we're better than anyone else, but that we know fully the sense of what we deserve in partnership. Everyone deserves to be completely chosen. I love that. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns. We'll target limiting beliefs and thought patterns. We'll learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood. We'll identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals. And we'll together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. You know, Dr. Welch, another area where I think a lot of women have lowered the bar. And again, I think it's because they've been sold this, this notion. The messaging has been, we can throw out those archaic expectations and rules and norms, and that will empower women. But sadly, it has done the opposite, is the idea that, well, you absolutely should. It's a great idea to live together before marriage. And yet you've looked at the research and the science that shows the exact opposite. It's, again, it's a bit counterintuitive. People assume it's a wise move even to live together so we can understand our day-to-day connection and our behaviors and the ways that we do life. And yet you're finding from the research that you've looked into that this does not, and it does, again, presents us as lower status. Yeah. I Again, Do I wish this were true? No, I don't, because right now it's normative for people to live together before they get married. So there are a lot of directions we can go with this, but I would like to start by saying, just cutting to the chase about what the research does show, and then I'd like to back up and talk about when living together really is a good plan and when it's not going to be harmful to your future relationship and when it's smarter to choose to get married without having lived together first which I know sounds terrifying to people today. So what research shows, not just in the United States, but everywhere where the data have been collected. So, you know, in science, when we've got numerous studies that all come to the same conclusion, regardless of culture, we start to think, oh, probably something there, probably something real. What the science shows is that the more people that somebody lives with before they get married, the less happy and lasting their subsequent marriage or marriages tend to be. The longer the person lives with their future marriage partner before getting married, the shorter and less happy their marriage tends to be. So in other words, the number of partners that you live with and the length of time that you live with them and the length of time you live with even one partner is not predictive of learning how to live with some, it's someone and have a good marriage. It's actually predictive of unhappiness and divorce. And that's extremely counterintuitive. You could have knocked me over with a feather when I read it the first time. Of course, I didn't believe it. So I went and read all the studies I could find on it. And it held up every time. So let's talk about why these two things are different institutions. People think that living together is marriage light, that it's a segue Mm -hmm. into a permanent commitment. People think, oh, it's the same 
thing. It's just cohabitation is marriage light. It's telling you whether the two of you can live together well. It's preparing you to live with somebody permanently and make the big commitment. And research just doesn't agree with that. So why are these not the same institution? Well, we've got hints because there are some people that live together first who are not less happy or more likely to divorce after they live together prior to marriage. That it doesn't create what I call the the cohab penalty on your later marriage. Mm -hmm. And I think knowing who these people are really gives us some important insight. Look, we don't have experiments on this. I can't randomly assign some people to cohabit and other people to get married without cohabitation. I mean, nobody would go for that. No IRB committee would go for that. No ethics committee would allow that to happen. Nobody's going to say, oh yeah, Dwayna, that sounds like a great idea. I totally will do that. So what we're left with, since we can't do an experiment that would show cause and effect, is correlation. The relationship between people who live together first and how long they stay married and how happily they stay married versus the relationship between people who just moved in after marriage. But there's this third group. The third group is people who couldn't wait to live together until they got married because they were already committed to each other at the time. They were engaged already. They had the hall rented. They had the dress picked out. They knew when they were going to get married. It wasn't like we'll get married someday. They weren't doing the fake engagement thing that a lot of people do where they they live together and they say, oh, we're engaged, but they don't have any idea when they're getting married. These people know when it's happening and they've moved in together because they are so excited to start the life that they're already completely committed to. Those people don't pay a penalty for this. Mm -hmm. So I think the critical variable here is commitment. I'm going to quote John Gottman, who's the most famous successful marriage researcher who's ever lived. In a very real way, what makes marriages work is the decision to make them work. Yeah. That's what commitment is. It's the decision to make it work. Now, people out there may be thinking, well, Dr. Welch, you are yourself divorced. Yeah. You know what? I don't have complete control over everybody in the world, not even the person I was married to. I don't. Mm -hmm. He decided to start drinking at some point so heavily that it crossed the line into alcoholism. I can't do anything about that, people. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that if you do everything this way, that there's not going to ever be any other variable that will crop up. What I am saying is you have control over this variable. You have control over whether you move in before complete commitment is established, either in the form of you're already married or in the form of you are engaged, you've got the date set, and it's pretty darn soon. Now, I want to address your fears because Dr. Karen, what fears have you heard people express around this? Well, the first that comes to mind is the fear. Well, it's also the excitement, right? Where women will be so excited. Oh, he wants to move in with me. And I think, oh, that's that's really disrespectful. Like to my mind, I'm like, that's disrespectful of him to want to do that. And maybe they even at some level feel that. But I think the fear is if I don't accept him, his offer, then he'll leave me. And then I won't get him. So I have to play by quote unquote his rules, which again, I don't, that sounds so polarized, but I think you understand what I mean by that. I do. And, and what you're really getting at is that's low status, I think. Yeah. When you let at. a man tell you effectively, you're not valuable enough for me to make a complete commitment to, I'm going to try you out at my leisure and have you risk your independence your economics, the possibility that you will get pregnant and I will never commit fully to you. I'm going to have you take all these risks. I'm going to have you 
act as if we're married, but maybe someday I'll propose and maybe I won't. That is not a high status move. It doesn't feel good. And, and again, people ask me, oh, well, do you do this? Absolutely, I do this. My sweetie pie and I, the very first time we, we met during pandemic, so we met for a socially distanced hike. And at the end of that, we were talking and I said to him, I really like you. So I'm going to just lay it all out there. Now, already some people are like, oh my gosh, you said you really liked him. Yes, I did. Because first of all, it was true. I really liked him as a human being. I really liked him and I saw potential there. So I shared that with him. What research shows also is the number one thing that anyone no matter what their sexual or gender orientation, the number one thing any of us can do to attract someone else is to say that we like them. So don't be coy. Again, high status isn't really the same thing as hard to get. It's not the case that you're being coy. It's the case that you're having standards and you're not accepting people who won't abide them. So I said, I really like you. I'm really enjoying getting to know you. I'm just going to lay it out there. I'm okay with a variety of living situations if this works between the two of us. Notice I didn't ask him to move in or get married or any of it. I said, if this works someday for us. I said, I'm open to a variety of situations. I just want you to know, in case that's a deal breaker for you, there's only one situation I'm totally not open to, and that is living together without being married. I don't play house. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to live down the street from each other and see each other every day. I'm willing to spend a week at your house and you spend a week at mine. I'm willing to see each other on the weekends. I'm willing to date forever. The one thing I'm not willing, and by the way, I'm not saying that this is what everybody out there should say. They should express what their boundaries are. I said, the mm -hmm. one thing that I won't do is pretend that we have, is put everything that I have on the line my finances, my independence, my stuff, get rid of my couch and use yours instead. I'm not doing that for a maybe. That's the one thing I won't do. Everything else is cool. Again, a man who is sincere about you will have mad respect for you at that point. Mm -hmm. He will get very clear about whether this is okay for him. And you know, you want that. You don't want to get two years into this and find out you're not on the same page. Find out soon, not late. Find out when the stakes are low, not high. The reason that living together and marriage are not the same institution, they are, as I say, separate but unequal institutions, is because they have actually got different purposes. And the reason they have different purposes is the level of commitment and the time horizon. When you marry someone, the idea is that the time horizon is endless, and therefore you have high motivation to work through the little bumps and slings and arrows that come up when you live with someone. The motivation is there. You're not trying it out. You've made the decision. The decision is in favor of each other and you're working it out. That's just the way it is. You give stuff up when you get married. You give up having everything your own way. You give up being independent. You get interdependence. You get basically insurance for life, whether or not you actually buy physical, buy actual insurance this is your person and this is the one in the foxhole and this is the one that's got your back when you get sick and this is the one that is going to maintain sexual fidelity. And by the way, the research shows that, <laughs> this is very interesting to me, cohabitors and married people say that they have the same level of commitment to each other on surveys. They say that they believe in sexual fidelity, but that's not how they act. Married people actually are much more faithful than cohabitors. So that's very interesting to me. So 
Cohabitation is an institution where the commitment level is a lot lower, regardless of what people say. Often it's just one person with a lower commitment level, but that affects the whole relationship, right? If you've been the person Mm -hmm. who moved in because he asked you and you thought what he said was, let's move in together, someday I'll propose. And what he actually said was, let's move in together. I want you to understand what he meant. Research indicates what he meant was, let's move in together. Full stop, end of sentence. So a lot of times the woman has a commitment level that is, we're going to get married someday. And the guy has a commitment level that is, let's watch what's on TV right now. (laughs) Do not make assumptions. You know, the old phrase, assumption makes an (laughs) ass out of UME. Don't make assumptions. If he didn't ask it, he didn't mean it. Do not make assumptions Mm -hmm. that he meant anything other than what he actually said. So cohabitation is a great institution for people who don't want full commitment. Cohabitation is a great institution for people who want the advantages of having a sexual partner on tap present all the time without cutting off their options permanently. That is who cohabitation is for. It is a wonderful institution for people who want to keep their freedom and keep their options open. People who don't want to have to check in with each other, people who want to keep their finances separate, people who want to keep their own separate identities They don't want to have to show up when their partner is sick. They don't want to have to stay with their partner if something terrible happens. Cohabitation is for those people. It exists for a reason. It is terrible at preparing people for married life, however, because what happens in cohabitation, again, I am extrapolating from the science here, looking at people who are already committed do really well having cohabited while fully committed being engaged, for example with a a soon wedding date. It's the people who cohabited without a date set, a hall rented, et cetera, who fare worse. The commitment level is the key. I think what happens when people cohabit without an engagement that is of relatively short duration is that they're basically performing a test. Are you good enough for me? Is this going to work? You know, that mindset doesn't change just because you said I do. I think when people practice conditional love, it continues after they get married. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there is an institution for finding out if someone's right for you. And that institution is dating. I didn't say research shows that spending every night together is harmful. I didn't say that. I didn't say that research shows that having sex before you get married is harmful. Look, one of the big reasons that people decide that they're not appropriate after marriage is because of sexual incompatibility. If your religion says no sex before marriage, then go for it. I'm not asking you to disavow your own standards and your own morality, but I am saying if that's not what your religion says, or if your religion says it and you don't believe it, have sex before you make the big commitment. I'm not saying to hold off on that. I know what world we live in. What I'm saying is cohabitation is not good prep. And what concerns me is so many women, I think they start to lie to themselves, Duena. I think they start to tell themselves, oh, I'm fine with this. And this will, you know, it's, it's the next step. And they believe that they're hoping it is. But if they were real honest with themselves, they want that proposal before they want things to go in the expected order, which is science-based. It's not just this archaic notion from days gone by. They really want that, but they, they give up on the belief that that's available to them because they see around them that it seems that no guy is willing to make that level of commitment before asking a woman 
to live with him. And it makes me sad because I, I feel that women are disempowering themselves. Yeah, we really are. And it's sad because this is kind of circular reasoning. The reasoning goes, the men around me are only, they're content to live with women. Therefore, they won't make a commitment when the truth is, if women wouldn't live with them, they would make a commitment. Right. And I live in the same world that all of you live in. Um, again, the the point that, well, other women are offering this, so I can't hold out for it. That's not, that's that's a false that's a, a false conclusion. Other women are routinely moving in with guys, and the fact that you won't, it bumps your stock up. Men like women with standards. It tells them the second part of fertility, you know, men want fertility and fidelity. Women with standards tend to be more faithful. So you're speaking to a part of their psychology that they want to have soothed, assuaged. And they, they want to know that because you had standards and were in this sense, hard to get for them, you'll be impossible to get for somebody else. That's men do not have such an ego that they think, Oh, you had sex with me right away, but you wouldn't do it with anybody else. Mm -hmm. You're showing them who you are and they are beginning to extrapolate information about you even on a level that they're probably not fully aware of, right? Because again, you, like you said, we're, we've inherited some of these understandings of the dating and mating processes. We've inherited these. And so we want to make sure that we're presenting who we are. And for the women in our communities, we, we know that they're high status and we want them to behave as such for their own good and for their own protection. And like you said, to weed out the players from the stairs. There's so many great reasons to look at the science because that is the tool that allows you to get for the, at least for the marriage minded women out there, it provides the roadmap for getting what you want and really getting what a man wants. Even if he says he wants this because all his buddies have been living with their girlfriends. And so he just thinks, well, that's the next step. You are showing him, you know what? I'm actually a high status and that's going to benefit you. You're going to feel more secure in our connection as well. Absolutely. You know what? And I'm, I'm just thinking back as you're talking about this, about groups of women who they do have bigger challenges. It is a bigger challenge to find a man to commit to you when you have a child. And so what research shows is women who have children tend to feel that they have fewer options and therefore they feel like they have to move in. And what research shows is that the highest levels of depression among women who are in any kind of partnership are women who have young children who are living with a man, the highest levels of depression, because the guy isn't invested in your children. He's not even really totally invested right. in you. He's saying yes to the free sex because, hey, free sex. And he's right. living with you. But as one of the major experts, research goddesses on this topic, Linda J. Waite, from University of Chicago, as she has said, you know, when you're living together, you're not building a life together. You're just kind of on the bus going the same direction, but either one of you could get off at any stop. And that's not secure. I'm paraphrasing what she said. I wish I could directly quote her, but I'm not that good. So, um, <laughs> you know, when I was a single parent, I remember I was, again, I'm telling you an anecdote from my life because anecdotes tend to be more powerful than just saying, believe it because science. Mm-hmm. When I was a single parent and my son was five, I met this man who, you know, from most women's standpoint, he was the entire enchilada, tall, dark, handsome, successful, rich, smart, funny, 
capable, from a good family. Um, he even cooked. He seemed like a total catch. And he had houses in several different places in the world, like London, Park City, Utah, the middle of Austin, Texas. He was related to famous people. I could go on and on. Well, he had a house that the tenant who moved out and I was living in San Antonio and he wanted me to be closer to him. And he had told me he loved me and we'd been exclusive for a while. And he said, you know, why don't you and your son move into that house? It's only a mile away from my house. Because at first he asked me to move in with him and I wouldn't. So he said, well, what about this? And I said, you know, and I'm just going to give him a nickname. This is not his real name. I said, you know, Tom, I, I hear what you're saying. You're saying you want to be with me a bunch more. You understand I'm not comfortable moving in and you're willing for me to live in this place rent free. So to you, it seems like you're being the white knight here. You're offering to give more of what we both want, which is time together. And you're saving me a bunch of money, which, you know, I'm a single mom, you know, that's always a great thing. I said, I need to tell you how this feels for me. And he said, how does it feel for you? And I said, what it feels like to me is the nookies on tap. I'm a kept woman. (laughs) I'm kind of a prostitute. And I am sacrificing all of my and my son's security for your convenience. I said, I know that's not how it feels to you, but that's how it feels for me. I'm not going to move in there. And he went, oh, wow. Yeah, I bet he did. (laughs) He goes, I totally get it. But you know what? Here's the thing. What if he didn't totally get it? That's fine too. Again, if Mm -hmm. you are not willing to live in a situation that is depressing, heartbreaking, where you might never get security, then you're going to make yourself have high standards and abide by them. And if he doesn't want to go with them, fine. He actually proposed. Wow. I didn't say yes for reasons I don't need to get into on this podcast. I didn't say yes. But you're probably thinking, why didn't you? I mean, he sounds perfect. Well, he wasn't perfect for me. He wasn't, he right. wasn't going to be able to make me happy. Did I rend my garments over that? Because he had a lot going on. Of course I did. Of course I did. But you know what? He wound up happily married. So did I. It's all fine. Um, people who say, yeah, but you're not happily married now. You know what? I was happily married for 10 out of the 12 years. That's a pretty good run. It's a lot better than dating one guy here and living with another guy there for two or three years and then having my life blow up. I wouldn't change it, honestly. What I love is that you helped him understand what that proposition felt like from your perspective. And you said it with very blunt language that really makes the point. Yes. It's the language, the nookies on tap. (laughs) I feel like a prostitute, basically. That's that's what's hard because people go, oh, no, no, that's not what he means. Of course, it's not what he means. But let's look at it from a realistic standpoint, like you said, of giving up independence and freedom and your own security. We turn over so much power and then people hate that. Relationships shouldn't be a power play. It's always a power exchange. It is, just is. The law of least interest, you probably talked about that in your social site courses. Mm -hmm. The person who's least interested in maintaining the relationship has the most power. And we don't want to play games with this, but we want to make sure that we are both equally motivated to maintain the relationship. And women who want what they want shouldn't be backing down from what they want because that lowers their status and then makes them look like the one who's more interested in maintaining the relationship, which reduces their power. All of that's true. All of it's true. And at the same time, an even bigger reason to do it this way is 
I want you to be happy. I would not have been happy living like a kept woman one mile away from this man's house, far away from my family, where if we broke up, now where am I going to live? None of this was going to work for me. It wasn't going to work for my son who was just a little kid. I don't need to get him deeply involved with someone who might not be in his life in a year or two. None of that was going to work. You know, I have women who say, what if I'm not good enough for this guy? You know what? That's his job to figure out whether you're what he is looking for. It's your job to figure out whether this man and this situation are tenable for you. And high status women are constantly thinking about that. And they're not saying yes to situations that don't meet their needs. Now, so it cuts both ways. High status is hard to get in the sense that if somebody doesn't rise to your standards, they don't get you. But it's not its not manipulative. It's not coy. I'm not coy. I lay it on the line. You know, the great thing about mating psychology is it's kind of like, you know how all of us learned back in college or maybe even high school that if you feed a dog and you ring a bell right before you feed them, sooner or later you can ring the bell and the dog's going to salivate as if it's about to get fed. That's an unconscious way of learning. You can do the same experiment with people. You can ring a bell, give them food, they salivate. Ring a bell, give them food, they salivate. Ring a bell, give them food, they salivate. Ring a bell, they salivate. Even if you tell them it's going to happen, it still happens. I used to do these experiments in class so that students could see this is an unconscious form of learning. Our mating psychology is also an unconscious form of learning. So even if you tell people what you're doing, it still works. Just like ring a bell, they salivate. I'm not coy. I tell men, I ring the bell, they salivate. I'm not being manipulative here. I'm being transparent. Yeah. And knowledge is power. And to look at also our goals and our dreams and our happiness and to make sure that we're aware of what the science shows us will help facilitate that relationship that we're looking for, that connection, that commitment Let's use it. And I, I think just women so often we, like you said, they they feel that if they're presenting themselves as high status, that it's they're playing games or playing hard to get or that they're manipulative. And like to me, if someone says to me, I don't know if I'm good enough for him, I'm concerned right away because it, it's not about trying to be good enough for anyone. It's finding the match that's right for you. And the person that's right for you is going to love the fullness of you. And so that good enough element, that's troubling to me. Yes, we have inherent worth and dignity. Yeah. Whether we believe that about ourselves or not, people have inherent worth and dignity. That is a different proposition than you're my person. It is up to each of us to decide, is this person my person? It is not Mm -hmm. necessary for us to decide, am I his person? That's his job. Your job as a person of high status, boundaries, value, inherent worth, dignity, your job is to ascertain what works for you and do not say yes to people who do not give it. Yep. Case in point, men who say, yeah, let's go on a date and why don't we meet at, and he names a place either midway between or near him. Look, Men who value you do not try to make it easy on themselves. They try to differentiate themselves from other men by treating you better than other men treat you. If you say yes to that, you are saying, you don't really have to value me. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you get around that situation? Well, I mean, you can simply say no, or you can say, you know, 
I really don't want to meet you halfway or do most of the driving. That just really doesn't work for me. I think I'm just going to, I think I'm just going to move on. A man who really wants you will say, oh my gosh, you're right. That wasn't very respectful. A man who just wanted to have a booty call will say something probably mean spirited and will probably never see you again. Good. It works both ways. It's a tipping point. You want to tip out the players. You don't want to tip them closer. You don't want to make it easy on them. You want to tip them out, tip in the stairs. Interestingly, men who our stayers will fall harder and faster because you're giving them the high status signals that they respond to that make their inherited mating psychology feel safe. You know what? Mm -hmm. We all want to feel safe. Mm -hmm. We all want to feel safe. Men want to feel safe. Women want to feel safe. Men and women don't necessarily want to feel safe about the exact same things. And one more point I'd like to circle back to is, yes, at the beginning, in the words of rock and roll great from the 1980s, Pat Benatar, love is a battlefield. But that's only at the beginning. As you get to know each other better, there's not such a power struggle. As you get to know each other better and you're both in love and you've both made the full commitment, then you already are high status. You've already set the bar. He's already met the bar. You've already met his bar. Now you can go to the bar, have a drink together and be in love for the rest of your lives. (laughs) And it is like that. And you've experienced it and I've experienced it. And we've been in the trenches in various ways, but it really is like that. And there's research by Dr. Donald Bauckham out of UNC, I believe, and you may have come across this as well, that looks at maintaining high standards when dating. And his research has found that those who do step into high quality marriages with high mm-hmm. levels of satisfaction, but two people keeping the bar high, even in their marriage, but because they've set that precedent for each other and they are like-minded in that. These are two people who want to continue to grow and strive and, and meet their goals. They did that as individuals. They did that when they were dating and now they're doing that in partnership. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to just throw a wrench in the works here. Dr. Bauckham, <laughs> Dr. Bauckham's totally correct. Of course. I mean, he's, he's the guy who collected the data. He's, he's right. I strongly suspect that a lot of this is predicated on attachment style. People who, and as everybody knows by now, you and I already did an episode on attachment style. People who mm-hmm. have a secure attachment style are, in my experience, and according to data, they are more likely to when they don't get treated the way that they need to be treated, they're more likely to simply walk away from it. Mm-hmm. They don't do what the rest of us, and I put us because for a long time I was anxious. I'm, I'm secure now, but for many years I had an anxious style. Um, what the rest of us do who are anxious or avoidant is that we, we're so fearful for different reasons, but we're so fearful that we don't feel that we have a right to, first of all, many of us aren't clear on our standards and many more of us don't feel that we have a right to our standards. And so we buckle. You need to, there's an English saying, begin with the end in mind or start as you mean to continue. Both of those sayings are true, which means if you want a high quality marriage, have a high quality dating relationship. That's, that's how I translate that into dating. If you want a high quality permanent relationship, start with the mentality that people get and have who have high quality permanent mateships. They don't date haphazardly and then hope that they're going to get a wonderful gold ring encrusted with diamond sapphires and rubies. They start out saying, 
this ring has diamonds, sapphires, and rubies, and I'm going to continue polishing it. If you would like to polish it with me, awesome. If you don't want to, I'm going to keep looking. Now, the bad news about this is, oh my gosh, what if you don't have a secure attachment style? The good news is you can fake it till you make it. Yeah. You can learn what secure people do and do it, and your attitudes will change. That's part of what I teach clients. How do you do the secure thing? How do you insist on finding someone who does the secure thing? Because those skills are invaluable when it comes to not just dating, but being with somebody for a lifetime. And you know, one of the things that interests me about secure partnerships is even if something happens, as happened to me, that the relationship can't continue, even if that happens, secure people are better at getting out of the relationship in such a way that they are happier, more whole, healthier, more successful, and better at getting into another relationship that really does work for them. It's an advantage. You know, Vic and I, my ex, he and I, even through the divorce, we were respectful to each other the entire time, the whole time. And we still, our most recent communication, we were respectful. Did we agree on everything? No. But did we call each other names? No. Mm -hmm. I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the Love and Life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events. And it's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free Empowered Dating Playbook. Yeah, and it sounds like from even what you were sharing that you had periods or seasons where you had an anxious attachment style that you did your best. Again, trying to go head over heart in this sense, use your intellect, use your reason, use the science to say to yourself, okay, I know that I'm feeling anxious in this moment, but I can still look to ways to behave as if I were securely attached and trying to let, like you said, let the behavior lead and hope that your feelings would then follow eventually. That's absolutely right. And it is something that people can learn to do. It is very possible. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of my clients do it. I will say, if you yourself don't have a secure style, then one of your must-have standards needs to be that your partner does. Mm -hmm. I don't do the thing where you're both working on becoming secure at the same time. That's, can it work? Sure. Is it the way to bet? No. Science is about the way to bet. That's what it's about. No science tells you what every person's going to do every time. Social science tells you what most people are going to do most of the time. Go with the odds here. If you're not secure, get with someone who is. And in the interim, do things that secure people do. Secure people know that If things don't work out with this person, if this person doesn't treat me well at the beginning, it's not because I have low value. It's because they aren't right for me. I don't need to ask why. I move on. So in a sense, the the protocol of the high status woman in the dating scene, that's actually going to reinforce secure attachment style if she has it. And if she's more anxious by behaving as high status, she's going to begin to alter and adjust her attachment style, which I think is really encouraging to hear because it's so many of the women in my community believe that they have no room to change it. And Dr. Welch, I think you should probably come back on to devote an episode to how to change your attachment style if you're not 
happy with it. Our episode 102, where we talked about anxious attachment and attachment styles and dating is one of my most popular episodes ever. I refer people to it all the time. It's a resource that is very helpful. And I'd love to explore that even further because that's obviously a pain point for many people and they feel stuck and they don't understand that there is room to grow and change and to move toward a more secure way of relating in their relationships. Yeah, I would love to do that. You know, Almost nobody who hires me is secure. I think in all my years of doing this, I've had a handful. I mean, I've been seeing clients for 20 years. I think I've had a handful of secure people hire me because secure people just, they just naturally do the thing. They just do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The rest of us, science can help us so, so much and learning what your standards quote unquote should be, what your barriers should be, the barrier to admission to your heart and your sexuality, what it needs to be so that you are safe. Yes, you're going to get the guy, okay? You're going to get the guy. I mean, I can't say you're going to get the guy that you want. You might want somebody who's terrible for you, in which case I hope you don't get him. I hope he sees your standards and he goes running away. But you're going to get a really great guy doing this. You're also going to feel really great about yourself. That's important. Dr. Welch, that is so valuable. As always, I want to thank you for your very practical science-based strategies because, again, as we always speak to, it feels like a jungle out there and you've lived it, I've lived it. Let listeners know where to find you if they'd like to work with you, if they'd like to follow you on social media, let them know where to get a little bit more of all the goodness you have to offer. Well, thank you for having me on again. I love love, love our podcast together because you are such an engaging host and you understand and use the science too. And I really appreciate that. Where people can find me is www.lovefactually.co. I work with clients all over the world. I'd be happy to work with you. If you want to see a bunch of articles I've written, podcasts I've been on, that kind of thing, write to me, look at my coaching packages. You can find me at lovesciencemedia.com, www.lovesciencemedia.com. Perfect. And when will the new version of Love Factually be out? I'm hoping February, but it might be March before it's out. I want to underscore that the old one will do perfectly fine. The new one's Mm -hmm. got some new stuff in it just because we have more science now than we did seven years ago. But none of the new science has detracted from or changed in any way what I said in the first book. It's just added to it. Perfect. The love and life hack for this week is, as Dr. Welch puts it, Weed out the players and attract the stayers by dating high status. Thank you, as always, for being a part of the Love and Life family. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend who's also interested in the research on dating and relationships. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen anderson April, And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.